Well, all over the world today, Christians and some of their curious friends are gathering together to remember, to recall, to reflect on, and to give worship to the risen Christ. We call this Resurrection Sunday, but in a sense, every single Sunday for the Christian is Resurrection Sunday. That's why the early Christians began meeting together on Sunday mornings for worship. Before Christ's resurrection, Saturday was the day for rest and for worship in the Jewish tradition. But that changed immediately with the resurrection of Jesus and solely because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's as if the day of worship went from the last day of the week as if something was ending and was moved to the first day of the week as though it were a new beginning. And the death of Jesus is like that. It's not just the resuscitation of a Jewish guy 2,000 years ago, good teacher though he might have been, but this is the Lord himself ushering in a new thing, a new era, a new creation. At least it's the beginning of a new creation. That's what the resurrection's about. N.T. Wright, a scholar and theologian, says this, the resurrection of Jesus offers itself to us not as an odd event within the world as it is, but as a prototypical and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. It is not an absurd event within the old world, but the symbol and starting point of a, a new world. Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply new religious possibilities, not simply a new ethic or a new way of salvation, but a new creation. Now that's where we're headed this morning in our study of God's word. We're going to eventually get to God's plan for a new creation. But I confess there's a bit of a windy road ahead of us before we get there. You see, lately we've been studying the book of James in the Bible, a letter written by a pastor named James. Now, some Easter's or Christmases or Good Fridays, we break from whatever book we've been studying together as a church and we'll do something that just more topically focuses on the cross or the resurrection or his birth. I decided for this year that we would just stay right where we have been. We've been studying this book of James. We take a, maybe a paragraph or two at a time, and we move through bit by bit. I decided to stick with James today, not because James is unusually useful for understanding the resurrection. In fact, he doesn't even mention it. He assumes it but because James is essentially fleshing out life and Christian living in light of the resurrection. James believes in the resurrection. He knows about the resurrection. And everything he has to say, so practical though it is, is essentially a fleshing out of what it means to live a normal Christian life. James writes to people who were going through suffering in the first century and were scattered abroad because of persecution. James is concerned that they keep going in their faith, that they not be discouraged in their suffering. He helps them make sense of their suffering. He, he wants to encourage them just simply to get along with each other and to not look down on others or, or how to view riches and poverty in this world. 
None of it has to do with the resurrection. And every bit of it has to do with the resurrection. That's the nature of our Bibles. It's all connected. It all fits together. You can get to Jesus and what he did, death and resurrection, his coming again, from any point in the Bible. And so we're going to consider what James wrote here in chapter 1, verse 12 to 18, in light of the resurrection. Let's read what James wrote. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you see how practical all this is? You see the variety of topics that James is laying out? It's almost as if James is answering a string of loosely related questions. How should we view trials? How do we get through them? What's on the other side? How do we understand temptation? The temptation to sin. Who's doing that? How does sin happen? How should we understand the blessings of life, the good things God gives us? What's the relationship between good things and God? And what is God up to in general? Is life just a jumbled mess of trials, temptations, sins, and blessings? Or is there an overarching aim that God has that we can live in light of? I know it's not a typical Easter sermon or a typical Easter text, but again, it's all related to the resurrection. The Christian faith is not just about one historical event or even a few historical events. The Christian faith isn't just about a set of beliefs that need to be assented to or embraced. Christianity isn't just a way of life. It is all of that and more, infinitely so. It is a, a worldview. It is seeing things the way God sees them. It is thinking clearly about God's ways in this world. Like with trials and temptations, that's the first of four coupled thoughts that I think James is giving to us in our verses. They're coupled thoughts in each of these four movements of the verses we have. The first is from trials to temptation. Did you see in verse 12, James is wrapping up his earlier section on trials. That goes from 2 to verse 12. But then in verse 13, he springboards into a new thought on temptation. And these really are distinguishable ideas and yet do go together. Trials and temptation. They're not the same thing. That'll become clearer as we work our way through this passage. But they're related in that we often, in the midst of trials or hardship, know that we're tempted in some unusual ways. Poverty is a trial that can lead 
to the temptation to steal. A trial of injustice done to us can lead to a temptation to be angry or to even retaliate. So James is saying to us, when we're tempted in trials is when we lose sight of what trials are doing in the Christian life. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James is saying we can be blessed, happy, at peace, at ease, even enduring trials. Not because the trials are easy, they're not. That's the nature of trials. They're not easy. They're not naturally a joy. But James has been working on us. We saw last week, he told us to count it all joy when you go into various trials because it's proving your faith. It's bringing forth steadfastness in your life. James insists this is not one big crapshoot, but God has purposes. This too shall pass is not some sort of vague optimism for the Christian, but it's eventually true. It'll pass. If we love God now, then being with him in eternity will, will wipe away every tear. It'll make sense of every hurt. He will make all things right. We don't see it now. It doesn't seem like there will be no scars entering heaven, emotional, spiritual, or physical. It doesn't seem like it, but that's what's coming if we love him. Do you love him? Do you love God? Love here doesn't mean some vague sentimentality about God. It doesn't mean liking an impersonal spirit being that you've made up in your mind. Love here in verse 12 isn't the same thing as occasionally asking God for things you think you need. Love here doesn't mean playing it cool with God, trying to be neutral with him, hoping that he doesn't exist, but if he does, uh, having been nice enough to him, maybe he'll be nice to you on the other side. Love here doesn't mean that we love him just as long as he gives us at least most of what we think we need. Love here is not just a feeling or a sentiment. It's an assent. It's a decision. It's part and parcel with belief. Belief about who God is and what he says he's up to according to his word, not our own making. It is belief in love for his son and belief in what he came to do. It is acceptance with God through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. There is no love for God without first trust in God. There's no love for God without first reconciliation with God. Our sin has put God out of our lives, we could say, or kept God at a distance. We've gone astray, and we need him to fix it. And Jesus came to fix it. And if we have that forgiveness that comes through Jesus, if we've believed that he died on the cross for our sins and we're forgiven and reconciled, then that relationship is a relationship. There's communion, there's fellowship. We want to know him more. We love him. Christians don't love God perfectly. But they love God genuinely. They love him truly. They want to love him more. And if you love him, not perfectly, but genuinely, well then endure your trials, 
and know that there is a crown at the end. Not a gold crown, like we're going to collect these things in heaven and see who got more. Maybe there are six. Who got all six? Don't, don't go there. A crown of life means you're finished. It's done. Most likely it was a, a wreath like they would put on the head of the winners of the, the first Olympic Games. It meant honor. It meant done. It meant hard work first and then finish at the end. We're not competing with each other. We're just competing to finish. And he will reward us all at the end. When we finish, he will wipe away every tear. So know this. You're tempted in trials. When you lose sight of what trials are doing in the Christian life. And when you're tempted, don't blame God for it. He may bring temptation. I'm sorry. He may bring trial to your life. But that is not the same thing as him tempting you. Verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now in a group this size, I'm sure there are some here who don't believe that there is such a thing as evil. And hence there's no such thing as sin, and no such thing as temptation. Maybe you think that's a silly concept made up long ago of, you know, a demon on one shoulder and an angel on another, both talking in your ear, trying to get you to do what they want you to do. Well, that isn't the Bible's idea of sin and temptation, but sin and temptation is real. I think you know that to be true, even if you want to deny it. I personally don't know how one could see the news headlines we see or read a history book from any era and not think that there is such a thing as evil in this world. I think we know that there's evil in our hearts as well. I think when we look in the mirror, most of us in this room, we know we, we fall short. That's the definition of sin, falling short of a standard. You may not believe in God's standards, but, but there's something in you that feels like you should be at a certain standard and you know you have fallen short of it and you would like to be okay, certified, approved somehow. Good enough, it's fine with me, you might say. But we're all longing for that. We all want to be justified. And we all feel like we're maybe not justified, maybe justified. We feel guilty because we are. And when we don't feel guilty, there's an explanation in the Bible for that too. Romans 1 is so helpful on this point. Romans 1 tells us that by nature we all suppress the truth that God has put within us. We suppress it. We don't want to own up to it. We don't want to live in light of it. We know we haven't lived in light of it. And yet we suppress it imperfectly. We'd like to push all of it down below the surface, but... We know we can't. So Romans 1 says that our consciences alternate between justifying ourselves and convicting ourselves. Accusing and justifying. It goes back and forth. Sometimes we feel like we, that we're there and sometimes we feel like we have failed. So we all know that we sin and we all know some experience of temptation and failure. But God doesn't tempt you. Don't go there. He doesn't tempt because he himself isn't evil. He isn't even tempted to sin or to tempt you at all. So how does sin happen then? 
How does sin work? What does it lead to? Well, that's the second couplet here that James wants us to see. It's from temptation to sin and death. From temptation to sin and death. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. God doesn't tempt. We tempt ourselves. It comes from within. You don't have to teach a child to sin. It's within him. Desire is where it comes from. Desire by itself is not a bad thing. Sometimes in scripture, desire is a good thing. Sometimes it can be a bad thing. Desire for physical intimacy in marriage is a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, Desire to provide for a family, that's a good thing. But do you see how desire can morph into temptation quite easily? Desire for physical intimacy If it begins to look outside of marriage for fulfillment, it leads to temptation and sin. Desire to provide for family has led many people toward a path of materialism, idolatry. Temptation happens when desires get bent in the wrong direction. And then there is lure and enticement which can give way to sin, which may drag us to sin, is literally the concept of the lure here. It's fishing terminology. Even in English, lure is a fishing word. I don't know much about fishing, but I think I know something about how lures work. They are meant to deceive fish, right? They're meant for the fish to think that it's something other than what it is. They're meant to attract fish, to get attention, to draw them closer in, and to hook them, and then to be reeled in. And we know how it goes for fish after that. They get knocked on the head, then cut open and gutted, and then they're fried in someone's pan, in someone's mouth, and then into their digestive system. That's the story of the fish who's lured. That's something like what sin does to us. It entices us. It lures us. It lies to us. It it cheats It gets bigger than it started. We we think at times that we can handle a little bit of sin. Like a pet, we can like pull it out and play with it and then put it back in its shelf and, and that's that. We've just had a little bit of fun with it. No harm was done. But James is telling us sin isn't like that. Temptation isn't like that. We're easily deceived as verse 16 points out. But verse 15 switches the analogy on us. Here, James uses the analogy of childbirth to explain temptation and sin. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is a grotesque picture. Desire, having intercourse, conceiving, birth to sin, that gestating in the mother's womb, and that sin growing up from toddler years to teenage years to adult life, and death is what the adult life looks like. That's where this thing is going. The story of temptation 
and deception and sin and death goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Adam and Eve were the first humans to sin. They were the first humans to be tempted. And their story sounds very familiar to really any temptation or what James describes of temptation. In Genesis 3, we read that the serpent who tempted Eve was more crafty than any of the other serpents or or beasts. He began to question, did God really say not to eat of the tree? He began to lie. You will not surely die. He began to argue his case. God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You want to be like God, don't you? See, that's half true, right? We, we, we were made in his image. It would be a good thing for Adam and Eve to be more godlike in some ways. And the tree was not the answer, it was a lie. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and gave to her husband and he also ate. And the results of that fateful day are being played out every single day since. Adam and Eve, after they sinned like this, they they found themselves naked and ashamed and they hid from God and they fled And that's what we have done ever since we have come into this world. We have fled from God. We have shame that we don't know what to deal with, how to deal with. And we cover it up in pathetic ways. The whole story of the Bible is one long story of temptation and failure. Israel in the wilderness was tested by God and they failed repeatedly. And hence they died in the wilderness. King David was on a rooftop one day and he happened upon the beautiful Bathsheba who was another man's wife and he took her for himself. She became pregnant. David tried to deal with the sin and the consequences quietly but in the end had to put her husband to death to cover up his adultery and the child that was born out of that adultery was dead. Adam, Israel, King David, you and me, you wonder if there's any hope for any of us. We wonder if this nasty cycle of temptation and sin and death can ever be broken. And then Jesus comes. That's what Jesus came for. He came not just to die for sins, but to be righteous. And he was tempted and tested by the devil. Not in the plush garden like Adam and Eve were, where there was plenty of food, But without food and in the wilderness, Satan went to town on Jesus as he did with Eve, twisting God's words, luring and enticing and promising. But in this one instance, with this one man, the God man, there was righteousness and faithfulness. He stood firm. There was no sin. The temptation didn't get through. It didn't lure him away. And Jesus is more than just an example of how to fight temptation and sin. He's a substitute for us. He was being righteous for us, not just showing us how to fight off some temptations. Just like Adam represented all of us when he voted for sin and cast a lot for us. So Jesus can represent a whole new creation in righteousness for those who believe that when he was righteous, 
he was being righteous for them. That when he died upon that cross, he was dying their death for them. Not the one he deserved, but the one we all deserve. If you believe that transaction can happen by faith, by calling out and asking for it, well, then there is righteousness on your account. There is the removal of guilt by him and his doing. Peter tells us that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And if you believe that to be true, then get this. You're not only righteous with his righteousness, and you have not only been brought to God, but now when temptation comes, you can get help too. Hebrews 2 tells us, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He not only helps us through temptation, he's sympathetic in our temptation. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way and yet he was without sin. So Christian, in your trials, temptations will come. And by the way, temptations will come also in seasons of ease and comfort in plenty and pleasure. But know how this works. Know where it comes from and where it doesn't. Know that God isn't setting you up for failure. God will make a way of escape in every moment of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, yes, temptation is luring. It is enticing. It is deceptive. It is a lie. So beware, but know that temptation is not sovereign. God is. The third couplet of ideas that James wants us to think about is in verse 17, where he moves from God's character to his gifts. James connects God's gifts with God's character. He says what God gives flows out of who he is and hence what he does. James wants us to know that not only does God not tempt you, but every good thing in your life is from him, directly from him, consciously from him, a decision he made to give you that good thing. All the things that you don't even thank him for, all the things that you kind of enjoy, but, but not even turning it around in your mind as you enjoy it. All the givens you think you have in life, which aren't givens at all. Everything's from him. He's the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What does that mean? Well, the father of lights is the father, I think, of stars. He's the father of the stars. You know, stars. Not like twinkle, twinkle, little star. But I mean those gaseous, nuclear fireballs in the sky. He is the one that made all of those, including the smaller one that we happen to circle around once a year. That star happens to just be one of the greatest physical gifts he could have ever given us. Well, there'd be nothing else if there wasn't a sun for us to be warmed by but God is not like the stars in many ways. He made the stars. It shows his power. James wants us to know that. But with him, there's no variation. And with stars, there is variation. Just this week, I happened upon a video that captured 
the implosion of a supernova star. I think the largest star of all of them. It was fascinating, glorious, amazing. There once was a star there, and then there once was not a star there. It disappeared. It's crazy. Suns and stars are moving and changing. Planets move even more. They're constantly moving. Our earth rotates at 1,000 miles an hour. So we should hang on more than we do, <laughs> right? We should, we should thank God for gravity more than we do because if you're on an 1,000 mile an hour tilt-a-whirl, you're not staying on that tilt-a-whirl. But God keeps us on this spinning, changing planet. There's shadows on this planet. There's change. There's cloud. There's storms. There's sunrises and sunset. It's constantly in motion. But God is like none of that, even though he made it, even though he orchestrates their movements. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so you should know with his gift giving, he doesn't change. He's the gift giver. It's what he does. It's who he is. Every good gift then and every perfect gift is from him coming down. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher more than 100 years ago, he said, God could have made everything we see in eyesore. He could have made everything we hear discord. He could have made everything we smell a stench. Everything we taste bitter. Everything we touch a prick. But oh, he didn't. This world he has made is superfluous with the layers of beauty and the kinds of beauty. It's just unthinkable and we rarely stop to give him thanks or just to stare and marvel at what he's given us and what he shows to us. Psalm 103 is a prayer of praise to God for his many and multifaceted benefits. David there says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Notice he's talking to himself there. He's reminding himself that he needs to bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. And then he starts enumerating them. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. When's the last time you stopped to thank God that he spoke to Moses? Well, we wouldn't have parts of the Bible without that, would we? There would be a big pocket of something else or nothing else in God's plan if there wasn't a time when God spoke to Moses. Forget none of his benefits. And in Psalm 103, as it goes further, there is one blessing from God that becomes the focal point among the others. And it's God's mercy. It's his forgiveness it's his covenanting love for us. The Lord is merciful and gracious, David says, slow to anger in abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And on and on he goes. This is clearly God's greatest uh, benefit, his greatest gift. 
his mercy. And that greatest gift is shown to us and actually the gift, the greatest gift of his son, Jesus' son. Jesus is God's son sent by God. As the famous John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The father gave the son to the cross for us. The son gave himself up for us, gave his life, gave his precious blood to be a ransom, a payment for our sins. This is who God is. This is what he does. Now fourth, another couplet in verse 18. James moves from God's word to a new world. God's word to a new world in verse 18. He says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, if you thought that we have dealt with some heady theology so far, this verse actually takes the cake. This verse is multi-layered in its theological topic. So bear with me. Let's not get tired just yet. Let's think about what this means, that he brought us forth. Well, that has to do with the new birth. Being born again, a spiritual resurrection. We need that before we can ever believe. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were all born spiritually dead. It seemed like we were sort of spiritually confused or spiritually curious or spiritually groping around to find truth. But the Bible says we were spiritually dead not in need of a life raft on the ocean, but needing resuscitation before we could ever even get in to the boat of salvation. We need to be born from above, not just from our mother's womb. God gives this birth, according to James, by the word of truth. That means the gospel. First Peter makes that clear, where he says, we've been born of an imperishable seed, which is the word of God, which he just then goes on to say, this word of the gospel of the good news that was preached to you. That's what James has in mind, I think. That word of truth, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. The new birth is brought forth by the word of God, by God himself. You can't get it just by reading the word of God. God initiates this. It's by his will that he brought us forth, James says. You can pray for it. You can't just get it on your own. It's not a mechanism where you punch in certain things and you do these steps and then you get the new birth. And you say, well, then what is this thing? I, I haven't had it. I don't know what you're talking about. I've heard born-again Christians. I don't even know what that means. Maybe it just means they're like really committed Christians or weird Christians. And in pop culture, believe me, I've heard the exact same thing. But, but this is the Bible. This isn't pop culture. The new birth is not something we are actually conscious of as it's happening. We're conscious of our evaluation of the truth that we're hearing. And we're conscious of our decision to start to embrace it. But there's this moment in time where we go from evaluation to decision. It's when the penny drops. It's when it clicks. It's when we get the gospel and we want to embrace it and then we want to live in light of it. That's the new birth. 
There are many people in this room who could tell you their story. Maybe after the service today, you'll just randomly look over to someone in this room and say, all right, what's the new birth? Tell me, tell me your story. How did you become a Christian? I know I just made some people nervous in this room. Someone might ask me, good, yeah, that's, that's the point. Let's have a conversation with each other about this thing that is so grand. It can be called a new creation. Even though it's personalized, individualized, this thing of the new birth is something like a new creation. Anyone in Christ is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 says. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. In James's language, we're the first fruits of his creatures. I know, another thing we have to define and explain and try to understand, what are first fruits? Well, in the Old Testament, God was helping his people think about his provision for them and leading them in giving thanks to him. And so when it was harvest time, the first fruits of the harvest were gathered and those were given to God, set aside as a a sacrifice, as it were. This was to acknowledge that the whole thing was from God. It was part of his provision. It was to give thanks to him, an expression of thanks anyway, by giving the best or the first of the fruit that was brought forth. And it was also a reminder to those who were giving these first fruits back to God that it's just the first fruits. More was to come. And more was to come from God. So in the New Testament, this word first fruits is used again, but it's not about crops or livestock or something. It's used about Jesus and those who are his. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's used of Jesus in his resurrection. In his resurrection, Jesus was a first fruits of the age to come, of a new creation. He's the only one that has been resurrected and glorified and is now in heaven glorified like that. He's the first fruits. There's more to come. That's us if we believe. We will follow with him in that path through death into life and into life eternal and perfect. In James 1, the language of first fruits is not applied to Jesus, but to us. It's because we are a first fruits out of God's creation. We are a sacrifice of praise to Him. We are the first fruits of a new created order. We are a reminder that it is all from him and it all goes back to him. He's the giver of all good gifts and we are emblematic of that as first fruits. And there's the reminder as being first fruits that there's still more to come. Even though it's been 2,000 years of people coming in as first fruits in God's new created order, he is still adding more and adding more and adding more, bringing forth these people from death to life and into the first fruits category of a new creation. All over this world this morning, that is happening. God is bringing in people left and right. And he he may be doing that right here this morning. You might feel as though you're right on the cusp or that you've been brought in. Maybe you're almost there. You need some help, some prayer. We would love to help you today. But no, friend, this is how God works. This is what he's up to. This is his ways in this world. It's not just 
raising Jesus from the dead. It's not just a virgin birth. It's not just a, a book of weird miracle stories. Oh no, he is up to something grand. He is fixing something cosmic and eternal and he is not done. This is just the first fruits. If you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to check out the first fruits that you see in a gospel preaching church like this. Come back next week. We'll just pick up in James. We'll keep going. We'll, we'll go to verse 19 and following. We'll read on in God's word. We'll try to live it out and apply it to our lives. We'll try to test to see if our faith is real. We want it to be genuine. We know that there are a lot of Christians in this world that aren't really Christians. They say they're Christians, but this new birth thing hasn't happened. And that's one explanation for all the hypocrisy you see around you if you're not a Christian. Some of it is genuine. Every Christian, even real Christians, are kinds of hypocrites because we're still imperfect. It's not done yet. We still fight temptation and often we give in and we feel bad even though we're forgiven. We feel bad. We don't want to do it anymore. But there are some people you know that say that they're Christians and they're not and that might help you understand what true Christianity is. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasure, love untold. We're going to sing of that hymn in just a minute. Let me pray for God's help to apply this message to us. Father, we thank you for the wondrous mystery of Christ upon the tree in the place of ruined sinners and yet the lamb in victory. Help us to ponder what you have done for us. Help us to be changed by it. Help us to embrace this Christ and no other. Keep us from wavering. Keep us from wandering. Protect us in our trials. Keep us from temptation if it be your will. Deliver us from evil. And Lord, we know that those requests will in another time be answered to the full. We trust you. Help everyone in this room, Lord, as we sing, to ponder the truth of what we're singing, to believe it to be true, to be changed by it, and to walk out of here as people who want to live fully in light of it. For your namesake, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.